Good morning, everybody. Man, we serve a great God, and we get to come to church. We don't have, we don't come to church. We get to come to church to worship and sing and pray and engage each other. Our text is going to dive into all that this morning, and that is always great. And this morning, there's just a little extra cherry on top of all that. And this afternoon, the wild gobbler will be hunted for the first time of the season. So if you see a little extra pep in my step, you know why. A little cherry on top. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. A large part of the modern American church has deemed theology to be irrelevant to life, boring, or even divisive. I am sad to even state that. These folks would put it something like this. What really matters is pragmatism, what's pragmatic. Therefore, tell me how I can improve my marriage, which is certainly a good thing. Tell me how I can raise my kids, another good thing. Give me three points in a poem and a few Bible verses to tell me how I can be great on my job. You can Google those topics and the world will list you millions of things to do in those areas. Don't, get, don't give me doctrine, they would say, in theology. Just give me what works in day-to-day -day life. But folks, that's not how God works in the Scriptures. The Bible never divorces doctrine from deeds because what we believe impacts directly how you and I behave. Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul lays out doctrine for those 11 chapters. Who is God? What is sin? What is grace? Who is Christ? Who is Israel? Who are the Gentiles? And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore... And he lays out biblical application based on the root of the doctrine that is taught for 11 chapters. Now, don't get me wrong. I love practical application. It's why we do a so what after every sermon. But the source, foundation, and root of any application must come from doctrinal truth. If not, you and I will get wacky in a hurry. Google wacky. Okay, nobody wants to be a wacky Christian, but there are lots of wacky Christians. One writer, our writer in Hebrews, follows that very same pattern. The vast majority of Hebrews, chapter 1 through 1018, has been Bible doctrine. We have pressed our way through that. Some of it easy to understand, some of it hard to understand. But we have driven down to that. Hebrews chapter 1 through 4, Christ is superior to all in his person. In Hebrews chapter 5 through 1018, Christ is superior to all in his priesthood. Over and over and over, our writer has said, doctrine, 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 here is the great person of Christ. He is superior. He is supreme. He is great as we sung about. He is stronger and bigger and better. And this morning our writer says, therefore, 
And from 1019 to the end of the book, he says, this is how you are to apply in your daily lives the greatness of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Man, that fires me up, just say The big idea is if Christ is supreme and he is, everything in terms of how a Christian lives must change. And our passage this morning tells us the new way to live. Not A, as in option A or option B or option C, but the singular new way for a Christ follower to live. Matter of fact, I and others, not that my opinion matters, but I agree with what others say for the four, for most vast majority of them say this is one of the best singular passage in the New Testament that lays out for us what the Christian life actually looks like. How fun is that? How relevant is that? We don't need to make God's word relevant. It just is. When life gets foggy as to the root of the Christian life and its purpose, here is one of your go-to passages to visit and revisit again and again and again for crystal clear clarity. What does it mean to be a Christian? So together, let's learn and apply these truths this morning. Read along with me as I read. Of course, silently, I'll read out loud. Some of you are going to start reading out loud. Joshua, I know that. Okay, here we go. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. <clears throat> the first thing a writer tells us, if you'll look in your notes, is the foundation of the Christian life is nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Christ. You know, if we think about the greatest issue that a person or all people can face, it is really asking and answering this question, how can a person get to God? And we see in the scriptures that even angels, even angels must cover their eyes as they approach our holy God. So how in the world does a rebellious born traitor like me and you get to God? One writer put it this way, he who dares to tread toward God walks on the road to certain death unless, unless what? <laughs> Our writer tells us 
He has told us in Hebrews, unless you have Christ as your mediator, who, he says this morning, is the new and living way because it is Christ who has opened up that veil and torn it from top to bottom to open up access to God. Unless you have that, you will meet death. We've unpacked this new and living way in the book of Hebrews, have we not? We looked at Jeremiah 31 and the new covenant and what it meant. A few weeks ago, we read Hebrews 9, 24 that says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. <laughs> That's the new and living way. The message of the new and living way is not you and I must do. The message of the new and living way is it is done. It is finished. So here he is forcefully reminding us by telling us you can not only come to God through your great high priest Jesus, we know that, but he is telling us something more. He is saying when you come, you can actually come with confidence. That's a game changer. This word confidence, confidence is loaded. It means authorization for secured access, the right of entry. But it's more than that. It also has this emotional meaning behind it of boldness and courage, or as one person said, joyful confidence. Now, you and I know just in doing life, there's one thing to have an authorized access to a special place, is there not? But if you get in that place and you're not really sure if you're wanted there, like you have access in, but you're not sure if you really wanted there, there's still a fear or reluctance or awkwardness of actually being in the place that you have author, authorization to be in. Anybody ever been in that kind of place? Like, yeah, every time I cross a fence, turkey hunting, it says no hunting, I feel a little awkward, right? <laughs> it's what I used to do. I repented. But here's the deal. If you know you have both authorized access and the one who gave you access actually deeply desires for you to be there and he loves you greatly or they love you greatly and they're waiting for you to show up because they want to do business with you. They want to be with you and meet with you and connect with you. That's a game changer. Now, some of you know and some of you don't know. For six years, I was the chaplain of the Cincinnati Bengals and Reds. Okay, When I worked with the Cincinnati Reds, I got authorized access from the general manager, Jim Bowden, who was a practicing Catholic, and he loved me being there. Okay, He even gave me a little thing to hang around that said Jeff Patton had my picture on it, and all I had to do was flash it. I could drive under the stadium, park my car, walk in the clubhouse, poof, walk in. No problem, no questions. 
But as I did this my first year, there were two guys, and you may not know this, in Major League Baseball, they're, they're called the clubhouse managers. They man, manager, manage everything concerned the clubhouse, what goes on with the players. And those guys didn't like me. They couldn't tell me not to come. But every time I came in, they gave me a hard time. And they'd stare at me. What do you want? They just, you could, I just felt like I'm in here. I can be in here, but I don't really feel like I'm at home in here. I don't feel like I belong in here. I'm tiptoeing around trying not to do something to get in trouble. Anybody feeling me here? Well, one of the players after chapel said, Jeff, you want some food? Now, if you saw the spread of food that Major League Baseballs have in the locker room on a Sunday brunch, it's incredible. And what do you think I said? You know I said yes, right? So I get a plate, and I start, and he goes on to do his business, and I get a plate and start filling it, and one of the clubhouse guys came off and went off on me. Who do you think you are? That ain't your food. That, I said, huh, put it, you know. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. Oh, Lord. Next few Sundays later, I'm in the clubhouse. I flash my bag, authorized access. I walk in. First person I see is the general manager, Jim Bowden. Jim Bowden says, Jeff, what's up? How you doing? Comes over and hugs me. First thing I have his mouth. I said, man, you want some breakfast? Have you eaten this morning? I said, yeah, I love some. And I walked over to the table. And I looked at the clubhouse guy. I said, <laughs> started eating it, smiled at him. So good. Whole difference changes everything when I know that the person who gave me authorized access also wants me to be there. Folks, I tell you, because of Christ, one of the most radical things is if you know him, do not approach him sheepishly and reluctantly. Run into his presence knowing he is waiting to do business with you and you with him. And there you will receive all the grace and mercy and strength and renewal. It is a new way that brings life and worship for anything you need and any time you need it. That's what our writer is telling us this morning. Now I want you to know our Jewish readers and hearers of this message they think this is outrageous because their whole life had been centered around this high priest who had authorized access, but it didn't quite feel like he was wanted there, right? Like this dude had to walk into the Holy of Holies, and they were always wondering with fear, would he come out? How would you like that job? The cross of Christ our writer is telling us, is your passport and access to a holy God. Yes, even when you sin, all of your sin, especially when you sin, all of your sin is completely forgiven when you're going to him, but the reason you're going to him is to confess it and repent of it, not reluctantly, but running to him so that you will actually experience in your daily life the forgiveness that's already yours in Christ. Don't get bogged down because of that. That's when you run faster to him. 
Christ shed blood in his death inaugurates the new and living way, as verse 21 tells us. If you're in the household of God, it means you're in his family, one that is bought by his blood, he is waiting for you. And that's why we title this whole series, what? Draw Near. So, the foundation of the Christian life, nothing but the blood. And then out of this foundation, here's what he does. He gives us three beautiful applications. Three lettuces, if you would. Let us, let us, let us. Some of you got that, some of you didn't. The first one is let us draw near, let us persevere, and let us stir up. So the purpose of the Christian life, let's look at the first one, let us draw near. We put it this way at Fellowship Bible Church, which is connect upward with God. That has really been our whole focus this church calendar year. Here's how the half-brother of James in James 4.8 puts it. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. A.W. Tozer, the author of many great books, one that I, I went off on this week was so refreshing, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the holy, I'm sorry, a great recommended read, puts it this way, the man who would truly know God must give time to him. Draw near to God is the great privilege of the Christian and in some ways the first priority of any Christian. Draw near, this word means to approach. It is a present tense used in our text, a present tense command that means it's continual or it's a lifestyle in contrast with the Jewish Christians who have been used to this one time a year approach. Drawing near to God is the ultimate goal of salvation. John Piper puts it this way, God now in Christ commands us to come, and it is this command that is the very heart of the gospel. Now here's how us evangelicals put it. We now have a relationship with the living and true God. Two things, I want you to think about how radical that is to any other religion. That's, that's radical. But secondly, one of our problems is this phrase and thought is so familiar to us that it, can, it breeds contempt in a ways because it really doesn't hit us like it should hit us. Oh, uh, yeah, we got a relationship with God. <clears throat> if we understand it and apply it, this kind of language to our lives, it quickly and profoundly becomes the very controlling thing over all our life. <laughs> Think about that. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. This is Jeff. <laughs> so glad I can come to you. I'm so grateful that you love me in spite of me. Oh, Lord, would you help me today? My heart is broken. My heart is grateful. My heart is, is confused. I am in deep pain. I am in great happiness. 
to open the scriptures and to meet with the living God. He is a person. It's very personal. We worship through song. We engage and praise a person. How do we do this? We draw near to him by faith. Meaning we believe he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. And we do that through prayer and worship and his word. And drawing near to him, then he draws near to us. That's what James promises. And he speaks to us and he convicts us and he leads us and he satisfies us and he calms us. And he brings clarity to us and he gives us motivation and he drives us and he brings our hearts alive with purpose and meaning. I am as shocked telling you that's what he does as anybody because he does it. He never has not met me when I drew near to him with how we're going to talk about this morning. So don't dismiss how revolutionary this actually is. The writer then tells us there's a heart, heart posture or attitude we need as we draw near in order that we not approach God superficially or ritually or hypocritically. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they draw near to me. That's what I grew up with in my home. It's what I saw, my dead model. Every night in his drunkenness, he would pray the same prayer. Oh, Lord, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this food. Da, 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 da. Amen. So our writer says we want to correct that. He says you do it with a true heart, which means a sincere heart. A focus of mind and will and affections, this word means. It means you and I must fight distraction to get here because there's a battle for your mind and heart and mind every single day. And then he says there's a second thing as you draw near with a full assurance of faith, which means an absolute confidence that not only are you authorized, as we said, but you are accepted and wanted in his beloved, that Christ is for you, he welcomes you, he desires to be with you, and he waits for you like the father in Luke 19 and the rebellious prodigal son come home. You are fully aware. Yes, you and I are fully aware of how unworthy we are, but our confidence and assurance has nothing to do with you or me. Our confidence and assurance in the midst of our sin has everything to do with him. When that changes, you will run fast to him and you will not delay. You will not hide. You will not become apathetic spiritually. There's a great hymn that puts it this way. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, bold I approach the eternal throne. And lastly, here's why drawing near to God is so crucial. Thomas Bernard, I put this quote on your notes, puts it this way. Our awareness of sin 
is in proportion to our nearness to God. You won't grow spiritually and neither will I if you're not drawing near. Because when you draw near, he shows you who he is in comparison with who you are. And that's a beautiful thing. So, purpose of the Christian life is to draw near. Secondly, our writer tells us, let us persevere, as it says in our text, let us hold fast. Let me look at verse 23, read it with me again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When I read those words, for he who promised is faithful, (laughs) man, it just felt like they leaped off the page this week. They were like screaming to me with neon lights, preach me, preach me. I said, okay. (laughs) Man, it was so encouraging. Our greatest need is a word from God about God. And this is exactly what we get. For he who promised is faithful. Again, A.W. Tozer tells us what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So we need to hear of and speak of and sing of and read of the faithfulness of God over and over and over. Tozer again says the faithfulness of God is more than sound theology to the believer because when it becomes internalized, it goes on to become nourishing food for the soul despite any circumstance a person may find themselves in. This phrase, faithfulness of God, means reliable, trustworthy, solid, steadfast, sure, immovable, one who cannot lie. And all he says is sure and true. When we know God is faithful, we can be under the weight of the world. Yeah, I'm getting emotional because I'm thinking back to those times when I was under the weight of the world. And his faithfulness tells us he will and is working it all for our good and his glory. And as we move through the other side of the storm, we look back and we say, yes. He was faithful. Her next chapter, chapter 11, the writer's going to give us a long list of what the faithfulness of God looks like in his followers. And the chapter of faith And that list is a bunch of messed up folks. (laughs) That ought to encourage you. We're going to see how messed up they were, who were stumbling and bumbling along with eyes toward eternity, and God calls them faithful. We are in prosperity. The promises of God are often distanced to our consciousness. That's why prosperity is more dangerous than suffering. But when we are in great pain and suffering, And life has fallen apart. The promises of God become our very life. And in doing so, we get intoxicated with the promise of the gospel. No condemnation. 
We are under God's faithfulness. In doing so, we fall in love with him. Holding fast is crucial, and here's why. Satan cannot destroy you and I as a believer, but he can, and he will do his best to distract us and to deceive us with two big lies. One is God is not good, and two is God is not faithful. And here's how he does it. He whispers into your ear, if God is all-powerful, then why are you going through what you're going through? Really? That's the God you think is all good and faithful? And we believe him. And when we do, man, we're in trouble. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. This message of God's faithfulness is what you preach to yourself daily. Lastly, we draw near, we persevere. He says, let us stir up. Oh my. Huh. Let me read verse 24 just to set us up here. Ready? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We see this word consider. He is telling us here that preserving faithfully is a community project. This word consider means to look upon something with intense reflection. A strong mental activity, the occupation of your mind to think about something carefully and intentionally with great reflection. Folks, that sentence is so rare in our culture because we live in a culture that thinking at all has become nearly 100% absent. It's like people are walking around on autopilot. I want to challenge everyone this morning. Here are some questions for me and you. And you need to know as I was going through this, I'm asking myself these same questions. What do you consider like this word means that I just described? What occupies your mind? What do you reflect on that holds your attention and grips you? Man, if you, if you, if you answer those questions honestly, it would be life-changing. And then to the men, all the women's eyes just lit up. they like, get them, Jeff. I'm going to speak to you men this morning. I think this text wants to challenge us as the spiritual leaders of our home and our personal walks because here's what I know about men. We can stay locked in for four hours at a March Madness basketball game or football game or a car show or you, you fill in the blank. Locked in, screaming, giving strangers high fives. Know everything about everything that we're interested in, that we consider. And guys, we can come here to worship with our brothers and sisters. We can barely keep our eyes open. We're meditating on what's for lunch. We just don't show up with that same intensity and, and passion that we have for other things. So don't take that as a condemnation. Take that as an exhortation because that's exactly why the scriptures, that's why our writer is telling us that. Here's what happens. Our kids see that. 
And they say, my dad is more passionate about this than that. They didn't see what we're passionate about. The whole phrase says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works or good deeds. This word stir up, it was awesome this week. It means provoke, to incite. It was used in Acts 15 in a negative way when Paul and Barnabas got in a big fight. Incite, to urge on, to irritate. I thought, how about that? My favorite new Bible doctrine, the Bible doctrine of biblical irritation. I have been called, I have been told I irritate people. Well, that's why. I love this doctrine. This idea is to urge or incite a change in motivation, attitude, or action. To provoke someone to make a change. It is a good word, but a word that pushes us into another person's life, the writer is telling us, to see how they're doing. Matter of fact, I've been provoking you this morning. And the reason I can provoke you is because I have a long list of men who have provoked and agitated and irritated the snot out of me for nearly 40 years. I thank God for those men. I reflected on some hard things they said to me, including this fella right here. Don't you think I don't irritate him too, agitate. <laughs> He'll tell you that. But we are good for each other. Let me rephrase it. Agitate to loving good works. We do it to others and others do it to us. It is to be normal Christianity, to help each other, to serve each other, to care for each other, concern each other, to correct each other. Now, it's not going around trying to fix everyone. It is to provoke and be provoked because love and good works are the pulsating heartbeat of the gospel in action. You and I can, can come boldly into the presence of God through Christ, and we are to also come boldly to each other and be Christ to each other. That's how it works. Why do we need... Why do we need this? Simply put, because it's easier for me to love me than it is for me to love you. <laughs> Our natural sinfulness and pride blinds me and you to the opportunities in front of us every day to provoke each other. Here's the deal. We are naturally, stay with me here, Spiritually lazy. Somebody say amen. Yeah. I mean, I'm not jumping on you. I'm just talking about the things I struggle with. But I know if I do, you do too. We are naturally all about our own comfort and we drift toward apathy all the time. So we are to poke each other. Poke, 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 poke. How you doing? And say, let's go. You're going to die. That's what the text says. And you're going to give account to your Christian life. Come on. And that's not self-will. That's care. We must keep an eye on one another. Not for judgment and criticism. 
but to lovingly say, come on, man, I'm stirring you to action. Show up. And you can't do this from a distance. What if when we gathered for worship and for community group and one-on-one, we made that a priority, we made it intentionality, nothing comes before that. And we show up and when we do, we do a couple things. We get with a trusted friend and we give them an, and let them unburden a present sin and struggle in our life. And then we find five others to simply encourage in the Lord Jesus. Church history has a word for that. And it's called revival. That's what happens. Verse 25 says, Jeff, how do you know it's face to face? Read the Bible. What does it say? Because some of these folks are not coming to church or community group. And our writer says, get your rear to church. So you can provoke and encourage each other. Most American Christians have a very unbiblical view of church. Tony Evans puts it this way. The church is addicted to a kind of life that loves and respects privacy and isolation. The biblical church is in direct conflict with this kind of life because God himself is appalled by it. Paul puts it this way. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with his blood. You no longer have say over how you live with your time. Yeah, I I know some of you got special situations. I know some of you, I, I know there's some situations that make life difficult. I'm speaking to the vast majority of us. I know you need boundaries. Our problem isn't boundaries. (laughs) Our problem is, is this. Here's the deal. This kind of provoking one another can't take place of all your relational connections, are you popping in here for an hour and 15 minutes and taking off? That's all you got? It ain't going to work. Are you sitting on your couch at home for no good reason except it's more comfortable? Ain't going to happen. If you do that, here's what it's saying. It's saying that You are saying, I got my stuff going on. I need my space. I love Jesus, but I don't do this people, deep conversation, intimacy, connection thing. The real deal is you and I are terrified to say something to someone. And we're terrified for someone to say something to us. So we just... So we stay in the shadows and we just wilt spiritually. Again, I'll end as I've with Tozer. No better way to quote Tozer. You'll never mess up. He said, secularism, materialism, living for me and the intrusive presence of things have put out the light in our souls and turned us into a generation of spiritual zombies. Man, somebody's going to ask you, what was the sermon about today? Just tell them, don't be a spiritual zombie. Folks, we can do better. 
We must do better. So I say to you this morning, with all the encouragement, non-condemnation, with a smile on my face, but a passionate heart because I know this works. And I'm human. I struggle just like you. So I'm not up here being bigger, better, stronger. That's not me you're singing about. And I challenge you to think about all that we said this morning. And here's a couple of applications. If you're not in a community group where you can get to know some folks and they know you and do all we say here, Chad Vinston is at the starting point desk. I've already warned them. They're coming. Sign me up. It may take a while to get you in one. But quit playing games. Secondly, I want to encourage you to open your scriptures and come to the Lord Jesus and lay your heart before him and think he wants me to be here and he knows everything about me and you become intoxicated with the great God of the gospel. And in doing so, I don't know if you noticed this, one of the big themes in Hebrews is what? Persevere faithfully to the end. And our writer bookends how to do that. Draw near, stir one another to, to works and good deeds. or, or to, What did it say? You know what I'm saying. Like he, he's sort of saying, like, these are the bookends. Here's the goal, and here's how you do it. Wonderful passage. Man, let's apply that in our church. Let's experience revival. How are you doing? And when somebody comes up to you and asks, how are you doing? They'll say, why are you asking? Because I want to ruin your life. Goober? No, because I care for you. And then tell them, man, I ain't doing good. Now we're talking. And I'm with you. I'll walk with you the whole way. That's enough. Molly's looking at me. Take a minute, apply those scriptures. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word, that it is true. I love that statement uh, that we need to hear from you about you. You are faithful and good. You are bigger and better and stronger and greater than anything and everything that's in front of us. So uh, we invite you to be God in our lives, to be Lord over everything. Give us a heart that is teachable, humble, hungry, And Lord, help us to uh, be a blessing to each other as we walk through life. I'm grateful for that. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.